Welcome to The Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds. I'm Julia Glotz, a writer, editor, and consultant specializing in food and drink. Every week, I'm joined by an expert guest to discuss the news, trends, and developments shaping food and grocery retail right now. You'll get a personal perspective on how business leaders and leading thinkers from different parts of our industry are making sense of the big issues. My guests will also share what's on their personal reading list, bringing you a curated selection of thought-provoking articles from the trade press, national media, and other titles. You can find links to all the articles and suggestions for further reading in the episode show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. Now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to episode 46 of The Picklist. I hope you're having a good week. Trigger warning, you are quite possibly going to feel quite thirsty after today's episode, but in a good way. My guest this episode is Jemima Bird. Jemima is a marketeer, a brand expert and a very experienced CMO who's worked for some of the biggest names in food, drink and high street retail, including Asda and Co-op. She's now founder and CEO of a consultancy called Hello Finch, which has a really interesting model that you'll hear her talk about in a bit more detail. But Jemima is one of those people you can always rely on to have an interesting take on what's happening in the market. And one of her big areas of interest at the moment is the RTD market, specifically ready-to-drink cocktails. This is a very dynamic and fast-growing market, and you'll hear Jemima talk about why that is, what's driving interest in RTDs during and after lockdown, the big cocktail trends to have on your radar for 2022, plus challenges around packaging and why it's actually pretty hard to do a decent cocktail in a can. I learned so much from my conversation with Jemima, and I think you are going to find it really valuable as well. So that's coming up in a moment. But first, let me bring you up to speed on the big stories in food and grocery retail this week. The acquisition battle for Morrison's was decided. Private equity group Clayton de Billier and Rice, which is being advised by former Tesco CEO Sir Terry Leahy, won an auction for the retailer last weekend with a £7.1 billion bid, beating a rival offer from Fortress Investment Group. The offer will now be put to a shareholder vote on the 19th of October. Staying with Morrison's, the retailer was named Grocer of the Year at the Grocer Gold Awards this week. This is the first time Morrison's has won the award since 2012, and it won primarily in recognition of its response to the pandemic, which included supporting British farmers and fishermen, introducing immediate supplier payments to help with cash flow, and buying up surplus food from restaurants and catering companies. Ocado is investing £10 million in self-driving vehicle startup Wave, It's also starting a year-long trial of Waves technology that could ultimately lead to driverless grocery deliveries in the UK. UK pig farmers have started culling healthy animals on farm because of a backlog caused by the ongoing labour crisis. There's an estimated backlog of 100,000 pigs on British farms at the moment, and the National Pig Association says farmers are getting desperate. The government, meanwhile, has been downplaying the crisis, with Boris Johnson suggesting in media interviews this week that killing pigs is simply what happens when people want a bacon sandwich. The Environment Agency has launched a project to standardise how sustainability and environmental credentials are measured in the food and drink sector. The idea is to make it easier for consumers to understand environmental claims made about food and drink and to protect against greenwashing. The project will involve a number of companies from the industry, including Sainsbury's, Nestle, Cranswick, Two Sisters and Vitacress. French fishermen are threatening to block the port of Calais in the run-up to Christmas. This is the latest escalation in a row over fishing rights in the wake of Brexit and could add further disruption to the flow of goods into the UK in the run-up to Christmas. World food prices have hit a 10-year high, according to the latest data from the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization. This is largely driven by higher prices for vegetable oils and cereals. On a year-on-year basis, prices were up by 32.8% in September. Amazon opened its first non-food store in the UK this week. The shop is in the Blue Water shopping mall near Dartford, and it's called Amazon Four Star, 
because it will only sell items that have been rated at least four stars by Amazon customers. Cadbury is launching a plant-based alternative to dairy milk chocolate called Plant Bar. The bar is made with almond paste. It will be available in two flavours and is set to go on sale in the UK in November. The RSP is £2.50 for a 90 gram bar. And finally, another plant-based news, Nestle is launching Vrimp, a slightly awkwardly named plant-based alternative to shrimp or prawns. The company already does Vuna, which is a plant-based alternative to tuna. Nestle is also launching a new plant-based alternative to eggs as it seeks to ramp up sales of vegan-friendly products. Those are the big headlines this week. You can find links to all the stories I've mentioned in the show notes and also at thepiglist.co.uk. And now, here's my conversation with Jemima Bird. Jemima, welcome to The Picklist. Thank you for being my guest. Hey, Julia. Great to be here. Now, you are an expert in marketing and branding, and you've worked for lots of big names during your career, lots of big names from retail, from food, drink, fashion, a whole range of sectors. So you've been at Asda, you've been at Co-op, you've been at Musgrave, you've worked with restaurants, you've worked in the out-of-home sector, you've worked with uh, retailers on the high street, and now you are founder and CEO of a consultancy called Hello Finch. Tell us about Hello Finch. What do you do? Yeah, that's a great question. I, You know what, I, I spent most of my career client-side um, and probably had um, a slightly obnoxious view of myself that I could uh, I could do it better being agency side <laughs> having worked with lots of different agencies over the years and um, what the sort of the idea around Hello Finch was born out of agencies are amazing they have some incredibly talented people but they tend to be great at one or two things but they'll tell you they're great at everything so they may be amazing in strategy and creative but when you need PR, they'll also tell you they can do PR. And you go, well, you can't really do PR. And so as a client, you're always slightly frustrated because you feel like you're being slightly oversold rather than actually just going and getting a great PR agency in that instance. And so I thought what would be helpful is for CMOs and agencies to almost have a middle sort of uh, pivot area, um, which is what Hello Finch is, which is we, we create an agency for the client when they actually need it. So if you need strategy today we'll go and find you the best strategic agency partner your agency will be hello finch you'll know who your strategic sort of delivery partner is for that uh, part but when you then need to move on to creative the agency will pivot around you and will find you the best creative agency and then when you need design the best design agency and if you then need pr so and so on and so forth for the client it means they've got the benefit of always having one agency hello finch but they get the best of all of the independent agency network fed into them at, a, at the time that they need it. it. means you don't have duplication of cost, you have the best people working on it at all times, and you don't effectively have any wastage in, uh, in, in, in the sort of skills that are working on your account at any one time. Who is a typical Hello Finch client, if there is such a thing? You know, well, that's changed over COVID. So pre-COVID, I would say, we would pick up, you know, clients like a co-op, a Moss Bros, um, some of the bigger, um, bigger uh, brands. During COVID, I think a number of those clients decided that they really wanted to work with, I guess, bigger agencies and they could have a, um, you know, one, one agency that could do a lot of different things for them. And they just could build a relationship there. And, that, and that's fine. I can understand why a number of them did that. So we very much pivoted into early stage and that also hit with a change of lifestyle that my husband and I wanted, which was how could we move into a world where we could help early stage businesses raise capital and then help accelerate their brands from an early start. And so a typical customer now would be either early stage looking for their first seed capital, say over a million pounds, or it would be an early stage business that's got several million behind them, they've got a good valuation, but they're now looking for that strategic next step in terms of how do they take their brand to market. In a, in a bigger sort of more grown-up way. When I rattled through all the various companies that you'd worked with throughout your career early on, um, I, I'm interested in how you came to be involved in food, drink, retail, uh, in the broader sense of the word. Was that a sector that had always interested you and did you go into that specifically or how did you end up working for companies like Co-op and Asda? Yeah, it's, um, 
it's a lovely question I I always when people say to me you know who are you and what 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 is it you're you're you know where do you come from I always describe myself as I'm just a greengrocer from Barnsley that became an accidental marketeer and there's a lot of truth in that um my my grandfather built um he built the village shop um so he started by with a with a, with a little bus and he used to drive around the village delivering groceries to the to the community and he then um decided he'd saved enough money and him and my na- nana built a um built, built the first village shop and so for me a little child from like six years old I used to basically work behind the counter <laughs> in his self-serve back in those days shop um very much on the penny sweets I think I probably ate more than I sold but you know there was a there was a good trade-off there and so I've always just loved um green grocery I, I love that interaction with customers and it's been a real passion for me in my life um as I've moved moved sort of through my career I often say if I could do anything I'd love to just be back behind a deli um you know serving great great product um that you display in a really fantastic way and that interaction with the customer is uh, is is just joyful um so it's a shame as you go move on in your career often you just don't get to go back and stand behind the deli <laughs> that'd be fun <laughs> Absolutely, perhaps as a ne- next step then. Um, <laughs> you are also a non-exec at Revolution Bars, aren't you? So you're really plugged yeah. into what's happening in drinks and the out-of-home sector, which will come in really ha- handy because we are actually going to talk extensively about the drink sector on today's episode. Before we do that, I did want to talk to you a little bit about the trends and developments in food, but also in retail in the wider sense that you are keeping an eye on at the moment. Because I really think of you as someone who spots trends quite early and who is interested in stuff, I suppose, that isn't necessarily on everyone else's radar. So one of the ways we have worked together in the past is that you have written um, a a piece about vending machines for the grocer, and then I wrote um, a a feature and interviewed you for that. And you're very knowledgeable about vending. You're very interested in concepts like vending and the opportunities for vending in UK food. So I'm interested to understand how do you develop an interest in something like that? And how do you keep up on on trends? Yeah, vending is, um, if we're touching on that, I find vending fascinating. I mean, in, in Japan, it's like the norm. So you, you go to Japan and it's it's incredible. They, it's Everything is vended and they think nothing of it. In fact, the way in which they manage space in Japan is they flip their, you know, their vending offer just flips and rotates throughout the day. And that is just basically a really pragmatic way of managing their really small footprint area to get the maximum volume out of that space in any one time. And so I, I kind of I look overseas into in, into places like the Far East. I think they're incredibly at the forefront of new technology and new delivery mechanisms. And I think they're, they've got some interesting perspectives on how um, how food is delivered and how they how they engage the consumer and so I guess I look for those trends and that's where I spend a lot of my sort of research time um the packaging for example they absolutely they make things beautiful you can go get a baguette in Tokyo and it will be wrapped like a piece of art you know (laughs) Greg's this is not (laughs) it is it's incredible and I think I look at that I think there's something in the beauty and the precision of how the Japanese are as a culture um that translates into their food and drink offering and and I think that comes over to the west over a period of time I I think we'll talk about a little bit later maybe but the premiumization of the sector of how people want you know less but better quality Mm. I think that's a trend that really has come from the from the far east and so yeah I guess that's where I look. I, I think they're just at the forefront of interesting things. How about your reading habits? What publications do you look at uh, on a regular basis? And what kinds of stories do you tend to be drawn towards? Most recently, um, and this isn't specifically about uh, food and drink, but it is very much around the cultural sort of identity of the world at the moment and how things are shifting. I'm, I'm, absolutely obsessed with Tristan Harris um, who's from the the Center for Humane Technology I don't know whether you've come across this so this is the guy that's done the recent um, Social Dilemma film 
very much looking at how people are being tunnel visioned into a more repetitive view of the world that they as they see it because of very smart AI that actually can't present you with differences. They just show you what you like. So AI is amazing and it finds lucky likeies for brands, but it, you're just polarizing people into, into tribes that are the only tribe that they can see. And the Center for Humane Technology has an amazing podcast uh, called Your Undivided Attention. Um, it's all about time well spent. So if you're going to read something or, or if you're going to go on Instagram, make a choice to go on Instagram rather than just hitting your app and opening it. Actually log in, because if you have to log in, you're thinking about it rather than just hitting an app and you're being mindless. And the idea behind it um, is very much driven by we're, we're just habitual characters now and we're habitual creatures. And everything in tech is driving you to be more repetitive rather than learning. And actually, we're dumbing ourselves down by, by embracing technology in an AI way versus actually using amazing technology to open up the world and see things differently. And I'm, I'm, I must have listened to, you know, 10 hours a week podcasts from, from Tristan and the Center for Humane Technology. That sounds fantastic. And I, I haven't come across the podcast yet. I have come across the um, the social dilemma, of course. And yeah. I'm really interested in what you were saying there, because I find one of the reasons that I really enjoy doing things like the pick list and having guests like you on the show is that, you know, you bring articles and that forces me out of my own media bubble. Because yeah. even if you have quite diverse reading habits, there is, you know, if someone else picks articles for you, there's always something that wasn't on your radar um, that ends up being really valuable and that you should have really paid uh, paid attention to. Absolutely. Has it changed your your reading habits, do you find, when when you're sort of reading up on, um, on, on industry trends, just sort of trying to be a little bit more mindful? And I suppose that kind of... Um, less but better ethos that you already talked about yeah no it definitely has I mean I've always tried to be considered in in like you know reading publications that are not necessarily say of my political persuasion to make sure you're getting balance on there but I've very much taken a view if, if Google presents something to me so if you know if YouTube says you know you just watch this you should watch this I now don't watch it because that's an algorithm that's a piece of AI that is pointing at my brain saying, you've just listened to this podcast or watched this video, therefore you will like something the same. And actually, the more you do that, you end up down a rabbit hole where you're literally looking at stuff that only you like. You like it, it's telling you you like it, it's feeding you more. And that's, that's really a rabbit hole and it is not good for your mental health and it's not good for broadening your horizons. So I now actively do not um, follow anything that is recommended to me. I make a choice to go and look for either something else or I make a considered choice that, yes, that looks interesting. I am going to look at it. So, yeah, it's very much changed my uh, my viewpoint. And we will be talking about the RTD sector specifically yeah. today, ready to drink cocktails. And you've picked some really interesting articles, actually, that will allow us to look at that market from a number of different angles. But let's just start with the big picture on that. Why are you so interested in RTDs? What is it about that category, that market that you find interesting? I think the whole lockdown world has created an acceleration of trends that I think would have taken maybe five years to come, come along. Um, and the RTDs are very much in that space. The cocktail market is fascinating. And even if you go into a bar now, there will be a mix of your very high-end bars that will, you know, the mixologist will mix you a cocktail and it will be the freshest, most amazing cocktail that you'll get. And it will look visually appealing the theater behind it will be exciting and it'll taste amazing and yeah you've got other end of bars where it's a volume play and so they'll have pre-mixed cocktails and actually you'll still have there's some theater you'll still have an experience and the cocktail will still taste quite great so this this has been happening in bars for quite a while and what happened during covid was most people can't make a cocktail. <laughs> it's really quite difficult. We all love to think that, you know, we're, I don't know, that's Tom Cruise from uh, Cocktail back in the day <laughs> sort of thing. That's showing my age. But actually, it's really hard. And it's also hard to have the ingredients. You know, who has fresh mint to hand every second of the day? And how much ice do you really need? And how can you blend it? So 
what happened during COVID was these, you could go and you could almost order a cocktail kit and it would come and it was like almost a one, two, three, how to make your cocktail. And then as, as brands have been watching this trend, there's like, there's the idea of, okay, well, let's get this, let's get a really great quality cocktail in a can. But it's really difficult because the acidity within a lot of cocktails is detrimental on a tin. So you're going to get a tinny taste. So how do you create a great cocktail that is going to taste amazing that you can you can ring pull and you don't just feel like, you know, you're the end of the night on a on a tube uh, home sort of thing. Um, not that we're allowed to drink on the tubes anymore. Um, <laughs> Quite. So what they um, so what they're looking at is what what types of cocktails can we play with? And brands like, you know, or cocktails like Negroni have come to the fore. And Negroni has come to the fore because fundamentally there's nothing really acidic in it that will destroy the inside of a can. So it can be delivered in a can. But then you play, well, you've got this whole world of millennials who are very, very conscious about the environment. So why are we putting more tin, more aluminium, with which there's a global shortage uh, following COVID? Uh, how can we put, um, actually, it's not following COVID, probably because of plastic, I'll come back to that. Um, how can you get a great cocktail into something other than a can? So that's going to be an interesting trend. So I think RTDs is, is going to run for a good couple of years. How they're going to be delivered. Is it going to be can? Is it going to be Tetra Pak? Is it going to be glass? And what's the best quality experience that a consumer is going to be able to get? And now they're into having a cocktail. There's a great line in one of the articles which talks about post-COVID, it feels like we're opening up again, but it doesn't quite feel like a champagne moment but it does feel like a cocktail moment. It's still a celebration. <laughs> Absolutely. And you touched on so many things there that I really want to ask you about. But I um, thought it might just be useful, actually, for a little bit of context for listeners um, to just focus on one of the articles that you brought from Beverage Dynamics. Um, mm -hmm. It's a little bit older now, but it's actually, I think, a really good primer on the market that brings people up to speed on some of the key trends that you've already touched on. And the headline is, Why RTDs Will Boom in 2021 and Beyond. Some interesting data in there from um, IWSR, which um, just to kind of give a sense of scale here and um, also to paint a, I suppose, a more global picture, because this really is a global trend. Um, they are projecting that globally RTD sales will see compound annual growth of 21.8% between now and 2024. And that's volume growth. So not just premiumization, but actual volumes shifted. And the article sort of goes into several reasons as to why they think RTDs will continue to boom. But I suppose the biggest one they point to is one that you've already touched on, it's premiumization. So the category is becoming more mature, more players are moving into the market, more sophisticated flavor profiles, better quality ingredients. And I wondered from, from your work with this category or from your research into the category, what are you seeing in terms of the consumer's that are now starting to buy into RTDs in the UK. Is that changing? Is it is that category reaching different demographics? Yeah, for, for sure. So if you think about RTDs, the immediate sort of thing that springs to mind is that in the 1980s, 1990s, um, it's a pop type um, cocktail. It was, you know, wicked sort of thing. You know, you went and got... Uh, high volume, high ABV um, cocktail that would get you drunk very quickly. Um, and then you could go out with your friends and you wouldn't have to spend as much in a pub. You know, it's, it, it is that. That's not that's not it at the moment anymore. You have got unbelievable qualities, uh, you know, cocktails. And Negroni, I mentioned, Negroni is a really grown up drink, really grown up drink. Actually, you know, if we serve that to our kids. They almost don't get it. They, mm. they, it's almost too strong for them. Um, and it's certainly not sweet enough. But that is appealing to an, an older audience who traditionally would never have thought to buy, you know, a cocktail in a can. This sort of classic G&T from Marks and Spencer's in a can was it's kind of you, you just felt a bit, you know, bit dirty, frankly. <laughs> one. It's like, really, is this one my life has come to? I may have some Percy Pigs as well. Um, but it's not like that anymore. You can, you know, people go to the they go to the theatre, they go to the opera, they go to the tennis, they go to sporting events. And actually taking a six pack of a great cocktail mix is a really sort of grown up thing to do. And it's a real shift in terms of an audience. So an older audience is definitely buying into that. 
a younger audience actually is buying into um, a, a sweeter cocktail, more, you know, because the taste flavor profile is just different, but they're seeing it as um, a premium piece. I'm, I'm having a great quality product, and but I'm having one as opposed to, you know, I'm going to a bar and having two or three. And it actually, the cocktail option gives them a route into having a conversation with their friends because there's something to talk about about which cocktail they're tasting, why why they're why they're drinking it, and it's a it's a it's an evening night mood breaker. And a lot of young people in the research that I've seen are terrified of a night out because they have to be themselves in a live environment and they spend their lives in a pretend world of social media that actually something like an RTD is a is a conversation starter. And so we've seen some really interesting trends um, that I think will come out to play a bit more. I'm interested in what you were saying about the research there, actually, because I suppose in the wake of COVID and lockdown, some of that social anxiety, you know, really is, I think, a factor across many age groups. We're all sort of having to learn how to be sociable again and how to be in those live environments. It's almost like, if you think about it, it's that the culture, what, what, what social media and the products that we all now consume, it's, it's driving you to be the ultimate individual, isn't it? So you, you get to be hyper-personalization. Everything is pushed to you in a way that is absolutely about you. And therefore, the culture of the individual demands personalization. If you then overlay that, I've been locked down and I've now got to have a conversation with people. We're seeing trends where I'm seeing, certainly seeing trends in the research I'm looking at where young people will go on a night out and they will actively choose to go outside and pretend to have a cigarette just to get away from the intensity of have to having a conversation. And so pre- presenting things where they can have um, they can have a conversation that is different to just, you know, individual one-on-one, what's your name, where'd you come from? You can actually talk about something. It allows them to bring their personalization to the, their, you know, their personal story, their personalization. Why have I chosen that as a conversation starter? And it's a different conversation starter to I guess, what you know, we used to do in, in pubs and bars. One of the points that's raised in the Beverage Dynamics article that I thought was quite interesting is um, the changing role of convenience in that sector as well. Because, of course, initially the, the selling point was that you get your RTD, it comes in a can, it's super convenient, you chuck it in your bag, you have it on the tube whilst you were still allowed to drink on the tube. Um, but that is becoming a less important consideration. Um, and I wondered what factors you thought were driving this is this largely around sustainability concerns is it to do with a change in occasion are we drinking these rtds more at home and are therefore perhaps less fixated on a kind of single serve format what do you think is driving that yeah i mean there's definitely with millennials there is a real front of mind thinking about environmental factors without a doubt which is why you know, a brand I mentioned to you um, previously, Pinter, which is a brew at home um, fresh beer uh, machine. And what's really interesting about that is they they sell their entire sort of philosophy around they're taking cans and packets and bottles out of the system. So instead of buying something, bringing it home and drinking 12 of something, actually here's 10 that you brewed with no waste, which is quite amazing. And I think that's going to be the big trigger point for me in RTDs for young people. How do they justify picking up a six pack of something that that's then going to go into the bin? And which is why I think this tetra pack trend that you're seeing um, in wine, which you know I remember again back in the day, wine in a box, crikey, you were really, yeah. <laughs> scraping the barrel, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, and you're sort of walking around with a straw. But that's that trend could come massively back, you know, notwithstanding. Because of the move away from plastic, there is a huge, huge shortage of glass in the world. There's a huge shortage of other materials, tin, aluminium in the, in the States is having an absolute nightmare of how do you actually, what, how do you display these products? What do you actually put them into? And coupled with then an, an environmental sort of front of mind view from a millennial, you know, it's not just, a, not just about popping down to the convenience store anymore and picking up a six pack of cans to, to take with you. They're going to think about that purchase. 
I was also really interested in seeing the new MS um, RTD cocktail range that's come out just a few weeks ago, the Marxologist, and that is in bottles as well, isn't it? Um, some yeah. interesting sort of cocktails that they've varieties that, that they've gone for as well. But um, if when you look at the press coverage around the launch, um, the the, the M and S developer behind that range very much talks about allowing consumers to recreate that bar moment or that cocktail oh, moment is that something that you're seeing will drive more growth in rtds as well that actually it doesn't need to be an on-the-go format but people are looking to to use rtds in yeah for, for at-home socializing yeah absolutely there's that is why we saw kits really you know grow you know, astronomically during lockdown if you're on a zoom call and, you know, we're all doing a lot of FaceTime, you know, back then when that was still a thing. Uh, and if you just have a glass of wine, it's, it's again, it's it's not that interesting. But if actually you can set up a, um, a session with your mates where you can join in with either a, an online cocktail class, you can be doing it together in two different, three different locations. You're adding, you've had the pack delivered to you. You get the experience of making it. There's something really you know, engaging about that. And again, it gives it gives some, you know, gives people something to talk about. As we move out of lockdown back into the real world, people still want those experiences. It's why I'm sure we'll come on to it, you know, things like competitive socializing as a trend for millennials is coming on stream. It's something more than just the drink. They they want to have you know a beautiful experience as well as a beautiful product. It's not just about having the product. The role of health and wellness, um, I think, is quite interesting in this category as well. And I think possibly a little bit misunderstood in the context of um, alcoholic drinks because people go, it's booze. Of course, it's not good for you. But I think what the article actually um, makes makes clear is that because we've become, as consumers, more sensitized to health and wellness, it's just made us a little bit more aware of quality of ingredients and of sourcing. And that is translating also into how consumers look at the kind of sourcing and credentials and, uh, you know, provenance, quality, et cetera, that they're expecting from alcoholic drinks as well. Is that something that you're seeing in the in the research you've looked at as well, that, that those sorts of considerations are becoming more important to RTD customers? Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's wider than just RTD, but certainly that is a that trend is there. It, 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 there's a there's sort of a piece of um, research that is very much focused around the better for you trend. And that is a, a growing consumer trend, which is all about, yes, health and wellness, but it's very much in the less is more. Have a better quality something and have um, less of it. So I'm happy to pay more to have, consume less, but the quality of that will be much higher. The obstacle of that is. I'm not wasting as much. I'm not, not using as much. Therefore, the packaging, distribution, footprint is lower. So it's a much bigger trend than just health. You know, health and wellness is much, much broader than just the obvious. I'm eating better. I'm drinking less. I'm exercising more. It's actually the whole thing for millennials is all merged into one, one thing which is, is this better for the environment and me as an individual? That's certainly the research I'm seeing. Yeah, and we're seeing some interesting trends in the sort of in the types of cocktails that are doing well in RTD formats as well. And you've already touched on the Negroni, and it brings us quite nicely to um, the second article that you brought along, which is from The Guardian, and the headline is Stir Craze, How the Negroni Became the Cocktail of 2021, which is a great headline. It's a really interesting article as well. It looks at the history of the Negroni, which is quite fascinating, and it involves uh, Italian nobility. Um, but it's really trying to, I suppose, come up with an explanation for why the Negroni had such a moment uh, post-lockdown. Because as you said, it's a really grown-up drink. It's not sweet. It's quite a challenging, sharp um, flavor profile. 
And what they're sort of coming up with, I think partly is um, it's a serious cocktail for serious times, um, yeah, but that we sure. are also looking for a little bit of excitement, you know, as you said, that talking point after lockdown, um, something that's a little bit different, it's got a strong visual identity as well from a sort of branding perspective. Um, yeah. And what you just pointed out, it holds up really well in a can, it works because of the acidity. Talk to me a little bit about the challenges of putting cocktails in a can, because you touched on this a bit earlier, but I think that's such an important point that I think isn't always understood when we're talking about which cocktail types do well in that format. Yeah, I mean, it fundamentally, it's why I think can is going to be a real challenge for the RTD market. And so it's... it's I, touching back on the MS um, launch, I thought it was really super interesting that they went in with glass. I thought that that really showed a perception and understanding that in order to deliver a great quality cocktail, you've got to put it in an environment that can it can survive in. And glass obviously allows that to happen. Obviously, the challenge is there's a global shortage of glass, um, which is going to, you know, we're going to have to look at. Basically, it just um, it's the acidity and tin just doesn't sound that well to acidity. And so you'll have to have a very short shelf life for um, a tinned cocktail, which then also um, not only have you got the degradation of the product whilst it's in there, you're you're effectively creating more waste in the system. Because if normally you would have an 18 month life cycle on a on an alcoholic beverage within a within a can, if you can only really get away with eight months before you start getting deterioration that's a huge on cost for um for retailers to to be thinking about so therefore what's your pricing point going to be to ensure you're getting that turn so i think it's it's a really interesting space i don't think anybody's cracked yet other than we'll put it in glass i don't think glass is the long-term solution because again we don't want a load of glass in the system that um, unless it's recyclable so you know, is is by is there going to be a biodegradable biodegradable piece of packaging that will come along? And I'm I haven't seen it yet, but that's where I'm looking to Japan, to China, to see what are they doing in this space because you know they love a cocktail um, out in the forest, but at the moment it's very much a bar experience. So I'm really interested to see how they're going to take that forward um, for an at home and on on the go market. And that Tetra Pak format, have you seen that in, um, in in RTD cocktails at this point? No, I've only seen it for for wine, but mm. for really quality wine. And there is some, there's, uh, there's an Australian brand um, from memory that is starting to do some cocktails in aged oak Chardonnay um, barrels. Um, I'm putting those into Tetra Packs um, that is just on the cusp of sort of being being released. That'll be really interesting to see. And that that we'll see how that stands up um, as a as a life cycle product, because, you know, is it going to last three months? Is it going to last 12 months? Can it last 18 months? And the other thing about a cocktail, remember, is it's all about the freshness of the ingredients. Yeah, it's and how can you keep freshness? Fresh mint is tastes amazing because it's fresh. You know, how do you create fresh mint in a can? Yeah, it's, it's or in a tetra pack or in a bottle. It's it's going to be hard to it's going to be hard to realise that. Um, it's why again, just nipping back to the pinter, their second generation product, they have a fresh hop um, addition at pull. So when you pull your pinter, you get a release of fresh hops, which gives you that almost literal tap room pour. I think when you think about the widget back in the day when we got that nice frothy head on a on our, on our beer, I think there's going to be a release mechanism in a can. I just can't see how it can work in anything else, which will release the fresh hot fresh the freshness, release that um, mint um, essence in that example, or whatever the fresh you know the fresh lime, the fresh lemon. Is there going to be something when you pull that can that it's like the widget works and it and it, and it almost breaks you that that freshness that delivers the cocktail? That's what I'm waiting to see. That's what I think is going to come, but I haven't seen it yet. 
fascinating (laughs) absolutely um i'm I'm so interested in, in in what your expectations are for that market so other than um innovations around packaging that we've just talked about what are your expectations for 2022 in rtds what are some of the cocktails that you're expecting to to take off or yeah, what are the big trends that you're keeping an eye on in that sector? Yeah, there's um, there's a couple. I mean, there's a couple of really interesting um, sort of spirits that are doing the doing the rounds at the moment. So vermouth is having a huge comeback. So cocktails that have vermouth at a heart, I think we're we're going to see. Um, rum is about to have another um, huge um, sort of takeoff. Um, it's where all the cool bartenders in New York. Um, are, are are basically basing all of their sort of new development cocktails around. So I think again, rum is going to be the sort of the next big trend. We've had the big gin trend. Gin's not going anywhere. It's a great product. It it's such a clean spirit that its ability to make a great cocktail is amazing. Whereas a rum has got a real flavour to it. So then to add to that flavour with the cocktail, you have to really work hard. Um, so again, I think. Seeing seeing that happen in New York is going to be interesting. I think that will then trend into um, decent RTDs. In terms of how the RTD market is going to go, I think you're going to be able to go into supermarkets within the next 12 months and you'll be able to pick up a six pack of a mixed set of cocktails. So you may have a Negroni in there, you may have a classic GMT, you probably have a Mojito, you'll probably have you know, one, of the new, uh, one of the new rum. Snow Globe will probably be in there. And you'll have a different set of cocktails, so you've got something for everybody in your in your in your pack. Who do you think is best placed to deliver on that from a branding perspective? Is that something like a, a retailer-owned label, something like a Marxologist kind of brand, or would you expect specialist challenger brands to do that, or is it some of the big spirits houses? I think it is some of the. So I think most Spencer's will do a great job. They do what they do well. They've got a great audience. Uh, you can see Waitrose very quickly following in on that. And you can see a co-op coming in, uh, un- undoubtedly. But I, I actually think the people who will drive it will be the really strong independent brands. And that's where the innovation will come from. So Four Pillars out in, the, out in Australia, amazing um, Australian brand, doing some really interesting stuff. You know, just got a huge valuation on what they're doing. Now opening bars, got a range of cocktails, looking to, you know, launching their RTD around the Negroni. You could see them coming up with three or four cocktails and really coming to market strongly. And then one of the big houses coming and buying them, you know, and taking them properly global. Now, the article that I chose for our conversation slightly spoils the party a little bit, I I feel, because um, whilst there's obviously a lot of growth and a lot of opportunity in in RTDs, it is also the case that attitudes towards alcohol are changing, particularly among younger consumers. um, And they are not necessarily as interested in alcoholic drinks as uh, as older demographics or, or the same alcoholic drinks. And so I wanted to talk to you about that and what you thought that meant for the market. And this piece is from the um, FT and the headline is as pubs pack out drinks companies worry about an abstemious youth. And there were some eye-catching stats in that article that I thought were quite interesting. So this is from a uh, Jeffrey's survey across eight countries including the UK. And they just looked at attitudes towards alcoholic drinks and drinks consumption among different demographics. 56% of 18 to 24-year-olds believe consuming one or more drinks a day is harmful. And when you look at older consumers, the over 65s, just 31% share that view. And then they looked at um, why younger consumers um, were more likely to, to look at alcohol consumption as harmful. And it's really nothing to do with any kind of moral objections, um, what that particular research found was they don't like hangovers they worry about the um the cost and in terms of finances and they worry about the impact drinking might have on their mental health what do you think that means for the rtd market yeah i think rtds will play into this 
pretty well because as you say it's not that they don't want to drink it's they don't want to drink as much as a previous generation for all the reasons you mentioned it's impacting their mental health they're much more aware of that um, and you know all the things you've just said I actually think they they the premiumization I can't speak but premiumization of um, RTDs and the quality of them means that actually having you know, a couple of those with their friends is actually a great way of answering that health question, which is better quality, but less of it. It means I can still enjoy it. I can still enjoy something with my friends, but I am not actually trying to get drunk here. And that's a massive sort of tipping point, I think, in a cultural divide of, of you know, where millennials certainly against my generation. It is, however, alcohol, um, we did a big research study um, that showed that alcohol is a really important part of young people's lives as a functional role. It literally is how they they use alcohol to break down barriers. So you've got past all the, the hellos, the pleasantries, it's sort of a, a safe space bit, and then they can have a conversation because they relax. Once they've got into a conversation, then alcohol falls away. They don't need it but they need it for that initial moment, even more so because they spend so much of their life on, on in a social environment, in a, on an online environment. It's why I think the um, competitive socialising part of the, the, the leisure sector is growing so much because if I can go and I can grab a beer and I, but I can then play the slot machines or I can play some golf or I can play some darts, Actually, I'm having a conversation about more than just being in a room with 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 a bunch of people. It, it, it opens things it opens things up. So I think less is more, and therefore RTDs because they're you know, they're not cheap. Will play into that. Um, I can still have a great evening. I can have a nice experience. I'm having some nice alcohol, but I don't need um, I don't need a twelve pack. Would you expect to see um, growing polarisation of that sector as well? So I'm thinking um, some of the new launches that you highlighted actually include, um, I think it's a US launch from Atomic Brands. They have a Mai Tai RTD, 9% ABV, so, you know, fairly Hi. fairly chunky. Um, okay. Interesting, I think, uh, Campari, they've obviously in the UK, they've just moved into RTDs with Campari Soda, that's 10% ABV. So on the one hand, you've got um, launches that really are de uh, delivering um, noticeable alcohol and, um, and, and sort of slightly more challenging flavour profiles as well. And on the other end of the market, you have your no and low. Would you expect the stuff in the middle potentially to find it a little bit harder to find an audience that you know you're you're three four percent that's sort of falling in between yeah. those two trends if you will yeah absolutely I I, 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 I think they'll almost disappear mm. over the next couple of years I just don't see that there's they could long term the, there's a place for it because that is that is just your you're standing at the bar you're, and you're just having a drink sort of market is that is the four percent and people, if you've got a, an audience that is wanting, you know, they're worried about their mental health, they're worried about a hangover, they're worried about you know, what, what, what we post on social media, therefore they're not going to get drunk. If they are going to drink something, why, they're going to choose to have one great thing rather than three or four average things. Yeah? And actually, net-net, the cost is cheaper. You know, to have two great RTDs is significantly cheaper than a night out um just drinking you know drinking beer sort of thing so you can you can see how that space of cocktails you play in that you know four or five percent it's almost like what's the point mm. yeah it's all it's almost like the you know the housewives classic is you know i'm drinking it because i'm while i'm deciding what drink i want to have um you know young people are not doing that we're nearly out of time but i did want to ask you um before we leave just about the out of home sector um, how do you think the reopening of, of that sector is going to affect growth of RTDs at retail? I think it's um, it's interesting because I think we're social animals. And so people that I, you know, certainly I, I've, I've seen, experienced and, you know, wearing my, you know, my revolutions hat, 
people just love coming out into into bars and pubs and socializing and being with their friends and having a good time um so that isn't going away but in in any shape or form i don't i i, I genuinely don't think but what i can see is a more considered way to drinking when i'm at home and that's where i think rtds are going to have a really huge play because if I want to go and have the experience of a great cocktail, then great, I'll go down to you know, a Rebsa bar. But if I want to have a great cocktail at home, how can I have that great cocktail? Well, if I can choose a brand that's got unbelievable quality product, that delivers me a, an experience when I pour it, that replicates that memory, then that's got to be a win-win. And I think certainly out of home should not be scared of the RTD market. I think the RTD market is going to steal share from beer and wine versus stealing share from bars and pubs and restaurants. That's so interesting because I was just about to ask you about that because, yeah, on paper you'd look at that and go, actually, I've got people getting cocktail kits and getting these higher quality RTDs, recreating wonderful cocktails at home. Do they still need me as as the bartender? But you think that is a... A, a different experience completely and yeah if you think about it, it uh, the best example i can give is the the nespresso yeah there was a whole trend we all went and bought an espresso we've got the pods and you get a great quality coffee at home it doesn't stop me when i'm walking through town going to my favorite italian uh, coffee shop and getting a barista to make it in front of me and have that experience and it tastes amazing it's just that when i'm drinking at home I want to replicate that as well as I possibly can. So I'm still going to go to Revs. I'm still going to have a great cocktail. I'm still going to have a great night out with my friends. But if I fancy a classic Negroni at home, wow, you know, let's let's have one of those out of a can because it's actually going to give me a beautiful product that's going to serve well and it's going to replicate the emotion in home of what I get in the bar. Fantastic. Jemima, we're out of time, but if people want to connect with you or Hello Finch, what's the best way to get hold of you? Where can they find you? You can find me on, so I'm LinkedIn, I'm Jemima Bird. You can get me on Twitter as uh, at JPD26. Instagram, I'm at This Bird Runs, which is more running content than anything. And you can get me at Jemima at HelloFinch.com. Fantastic. Jemima, thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you so much, Julia. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it useful. If you did, please consider giving The Picklist a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening and leave a review. It tells me you're enjoying the show and would like it to continue, and it helps me reach more listeners. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn at juliaglotz.com and on thepicklist.co.uk. And if you'd like more thought-provoking reads for your personal reading list, please subscribe to The Trim, my free weekly newsletter at juliaglotz.com forward slash newsletter. See you next time.